Well, thank you for uh, having me. Uh, I just remembered about 30 seconds ago uh, that I've been here before, and it was probably 21, 20 years ago. Uh, my brother and sister-in-law got married here. Uh, my brother is Austin Long. Uh, his wife is Erin Goodrow, and so they were married a while ago. And I, Yeah, just crazy, right? Well, I'm glad I'm here. Uh, my wife is with me, Carrie, and my daughter, Sophia, and uh, our friend, Caleb, uh, is with us as well. Uh, I'm going to be preaching today from Haggai, uh, so if you have a Bible or a phone, it may take a while to get there, so you can probably get started now. In the late 90s, uh, there was a movie you may uh, remember, uh, a movie starring Jim Carrey, is entitled Liar, Liar. Any of you guys ever seen Liar, Liar, or Jim Carrey? A few? Yeah. Uh, Carrey plays this uh, character named Fletcher Reed, and uh, he's a divorced father who has an, an incredibly successful, um, he's an incredibly successful lawyer. Uh, but he's built his entire career on lies, on lying. And he's also in the habit of giving precedence to uh, his job. And so he, as a result, he breaks promises with his young son, Max. He spends his life prioritizing his career over his relationship with his son. You ever struggle with priorities? Uh, I mean, you have good intentions, but somewhere along the lines, you just get a little sidetracked. Uh, like the, the poor dad from the movie Liar, Liar, he knew he needed to spend time with his son, but work seemed to get in the way. We probably all do it in small ways. Uh, like that project that you start that you never quite finish. It's close, uh, but you never get back around to it. Uh, my wife and I, we purchased the house about a year and a half ago, when, uh, right when uh, COVID hit and all the quarantine. And so my daughter and son and her, she, they were there every day working on projects. We redid the uh, kitchen, and, and my, water got, my daughter got to knock down a half wall. She was very excited about that with a sledgehammer. And so we got all that done. And then, like, we got back to regular life, and we have all these little projects, don't we? We haven't finished up, and it's annoying, but it's not the priority. Because something else has a higher priority. The theme of the prophetical book of Haggai, it revolves around priorities. Uh, And in this book, Haggai, he's encouraging these Babylonian exiles who had returned back home to Jerusalem to rebuild their temple. Now, I think in in order to fully understand this message, it's important to have some context, right? We've got to explore the context in which it was written and and why it was written. Because if we don't, um, we don't understand what's going on around them. We might not really get the full impact of this message. We might not get the urgency pertency of their words. And so, if you don't mind, I'm going to do a brief history lesson, and I hope you'll bear with me. And again, it might give you some more time to find this little book in the Old Testament. Haggai is writing around 520 BC, and uh, it's almost 70 years after the city of Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians. And many of these people, they were deported. They were exiled to a foreign land. And so when Judah fell, the temple was also destroyed. And as a result, the people are left living in this foreign land without a way to worship their God, Yahweh. But then something amazing happened in 539, 538. The Persians, they took control from the Babylonians. And they were much more amenable to this conquered people. And so they took these Jews who were exiled and they sent them back to their homeland. And they sent them with money to rebuild their temple and rebuild their city. And so many of them did. Uh, You might recall the story found in Ezra where uh, the people, they come back and they get to work. um, And they make a good start and things were going great. And there's excitement and celebration. And uh, it's all in the air. And the people had a mind to work for the Lord. 
But then they hit some roadblocks. Uh, they, they faced some opposition from the Samaritans. And their enthusiasm, their motivation, it faded. And eventually, they became apathetic. And they just gave up on the project. If you've ever gone on a mission trip... Um, to build something in a foreign place or a different place, you might be familiar with this storyline. On Monday, uh, everyone at the beginning of the week is ready to go. They're up. They're ready. You don't have to rouse people out of bed. They're, they're ready. They want to get to work. There's no quibbling. There's no fighting. People just want to get to work. But by Wednesday or Thursday, people are being dragged out of bed. Uh, on the work site, <clears throat> you may find a little bit of frustration Things have not come together like they think they should have. And by Friday, well, everyone's ready just to go home and be done with it. I, uh, I was a youth minister in Kentucky, and I took a youth group to New Orleans in 2009 uh, to rebuild after Hurricane Katrina. And uh, one of our projects was putting uh, tongue-and-groove paneling on a ceiling. Yeah. While tongue and groove, it looks nice. And if it's installed improperly, though, it can be a real pain. And so doing it on a vaulted ceiling, not dissimilar from this one, it's a bit of a challenge. And so we got up, we got on the scaffolding, we had harnesses, we had the whole thing, and we set to it. And and it started out actually pretty well. Things were going along nicely. Um, But at some point, whether it was warped wood, uh, whether it was a crooked ceiling... Whether it's incompetent installers, I don't know, the pieces just would not fit. And we pushed and we pulled, we tugged and we torqued these things. In fact, we even were like cutting pieces off to try to you know, get them in. And it just, they just would not fit. They would not go together. <clears throat> so eventually we just kind of gave up. And we went out to the front and we started sanding. And I don't know what paint this was or how it adhered to the wood. It wasn't coming off that wood either. And so we're just sitting there sanding, and we just felt so, uh, just so over it. I tell you, it was pretty frustrating. And I can probably speak for the rest of the group, and my wife was there as well. We just wanted to quit and just be done. That's the sort of situation that these returned Jews seem to have found themselves in. They faced some adversity, and eventually they just gave up. They stopped working, and they turned their attention to other matters. Uh, And so the temple sat with some work on it, but basically in ruin for 16 years. Over time, I think the nation got used to the routine without a temple. Uh, Deserted like an old abandoned neighborhood lot. The foundation was overgrown with weeds the temple, it was soon forgotten. And it's into this context that God delivers a message through the prophet Haggai. And so he says, starting in chapter 1, verse 2, This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. First, God identifies who's giving this word. The NIV says the Lord Almighty. But really, it's Yahweh of hosts. This is Israel's God. This is Yahweh who rules over all the heavenly bodies and beings. This isn't just some guy named Haggai saying it, right? This is the God of the universe. So they better listen up. And God actually quotes the people. He says, yeah, it's, it's not quite time to rebuild the temple. And as I said, initially, those who had returned from exile, they started, 
but the project was halted, and the work site lay dormant for 16 years. I mentioned that I used to live in Kentucky, and they began this thing called the Centerpoint Project. And the goal was to make this huge skyscraper in downtown Lexington, Kentucky. And so right in the middle, they, they knocked down some older buildings, and they dug like 100 feet into the ground, because they were going to put a big parking garage under the skyscraper. And once they dug the big hole, the work stopped. And so all this initial excitement, and it just sat there. And there's a big hole in the ground in the middle of Lexington for years, the size of a city block. That's a lot like what happened here in Jerusalem. And the excuse as to why they had not done it, it's a bit flimsy. It's not quite time yet. And so if it's not time to build the temple, what time is it? We'll jump down to verse 4. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? When I think of paneling, um, I think back to the kind of that, that cheap wood paneling that was all the rage in the 70s. You know what I'm talking about? You could find wood paneling in every home you entered into. You could even find it on the sides of cars, which also boggled my mind. Like these station wagons with wood on the side. I, okay, that's fine. That's fine. And it was very popular back then. Now, you know, not so much. It's a little passe. But that's not what we're talking about here. Homes during that time were mostly made of dirt and stone and maybe some clay. But what's being described here seemed to have walls and ceilings covered with cedar wood. And this, this sort of decoration, it's a sign of prosperity and luxury. In fact, the same Hebrew word used here uh, for paneled is actually used in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 9, and describes the, the opulent interior of Solomon's temple. And so, in a land where wood is scarce, the people are spending money and time and effort freely on their own homes while neglecting the rebuilding of the temple. The nation's priorities were misplaced. The people had focused on decorating their homes instead of rebuilding the temple. And so God's house lay in ruins, desolate, while they're living it up. The Jews in Haggai's day, uh, they initially had a great excuse to be distracted and busy with life. I mean, remember, they had recently returned to Jerusalem after 70 years of exile and captivity in Babylon. It wasn't just the temple, but their entire city was in ruins. They're starting from scratch, building, planting, uh, fabricating, jump-starting their economy. I mean, imagine your state of mind if a tornado ripped through this community, destroying homes, destroying this church, everything just reduced to rubble. I mean, would your first priority be to get the church rebuilt? Or would it be to get your home built so you could live somewhere? I'm guessing that our immediate interests would probably center around rebuilding our homes and repairing our homes and getting back to some sense of normalcy before anything else. I mean, that's the practical thing to do, after all. But there's a reason why rebuilding this temple was so important. It's a reason I think we might easily overlook. As New Testament believers um, who have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, we talk about the fact that God is not confined to a building, right? Uh, that we could have church anywhere, that we don't need, technically, all of this. And it's completely true, right? Where two or three are gathered, uh, God is there. Churches meet in homes, in malls, in schools, in parks, in cellars, in basements. 
it's not about the building, right? It's about the heart. But in Haggai's day, building the house of the Lord actually implied far more than just a physical building. The temple of the Lord, it, it pictured the people's connection with God. It was the focal point of their entire spiritual life. It was the basis of their relationship with this holy God. It's where their worship of God took place. It's where their service and work for the Lord happened. And so their sacrifices, the things they brought, they facilitated all of these things. And without the temple, sacrifices could not be made. God was not worshipped. And this relationship, it faltered. And so the temple and the covenant, they were bound together. And so while the temple lay in ruins, there was no outward sign of of Yahweh's presence in their midst. This restored community, in their minds, didn't have Yahweh among them. And so there's more at stake than just building an expensive building. Because this temple, it symbolized this reciprocal relationship. God gives And God restores. And God expects a response from his people. But it wasn't there. And as a result, the blessing of God in their new situation, it was also absent. And he points out that if you've been paying attention, God says, you've noticed things aren't going that well for you. Look at verses 5 and 6. Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You've planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not worn. You earn wages, only to put them in a purse with holes in it. And then jumping down to verse 9. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. I think verse 6 really lays out the problem. The people's efforts to improve their own lives have proved futile, while they've ignored the important task of restoring Yahweh's house. I mean, the people were very intent on building their own houses, but they were neglecting the work of Yahweh's house, and the result, nothing was being fruitful. Basically, God was saying, you've you've not prospered seeking self-satisfaction. You thought you could escape poverty by ignoring the temple and keeping the resources that have been given to you to be used to restore the temple. And you spent them on what you thought could bring you comfort and happiness. Instead of cheating the Lord, you've actually been cheating yourselves. Crop failure has dragged you deeper into poverty. And what you earn, you were unable to keep because the cost of living is constantly increasing. Seemingly, they weren't just neglecting the restoration of the temple, but they were misusing the gifts that were given for the restoration of the temple. And so did they prosper? No. And what have they gained? Nothing. Are they better off than they were in Babylon? No. And so God is issuing them a warning and a bit of a reprimand. God was displeased with what they were doing, and he was sending them a wake-up call. Their situation is not merely a matter of chance. There comes a time when God's blessings are withheld, and his judgments are poured out on the land. 
because disobedience results in punishment. And it might be easy to uh, view this as kind of like a religious blackmail like, or like mob protection. If you don't pay up, eh, you're going to suffer. That's not what's going on here. What Haggai is describing here is a relationship of trust and obedience. This, this proclamation holds modern day significance because our relationship with God, I think, is set up the same way. God, say, God says, do this and do life this way and you will be blessed. I know it doesn't make any sense to you. I know it's not what seems practical. I know it seems foolish to the rest of the world. But trust me, you will see and you will experience blessing down the road. All you will find by doing it your own way is frustration. Parents and teachers and bosses, uh, we encounter this on almost a daily basis, don't we? There's a certain way of doing things. Chores, assignments, math problems, work tasks, and more. That if followed, will make life better, simpler, and result in success. But doing it a different way will lead to failure and frustration. And despite the old adage, Father knows best, we still choose our own way, don't we? We expect a great return from our labors. And when the return is nowhere near what we would expect, we're confused. I don't understand why this is happening. The reason is simple. We did it the wrong way. We didn't do it in God's way. And we put ourselves ahead of him. We say, it's not time to build God's house or God's kingdom. But it's time to build our houses and do our thing. And our priorities have slowly shifted. We've begun to care more about our own personal interests than our relationship with the Lord. I want to make a, a big spiritual move here. Twice in 1 Corinthians, in chapters 3 and 6, Paul basically says, Your body is a temple of God, and the Spirit dwells in it. So Paul is taking this idea of temple. It's full of all that meaning we just discussed. And he's applied it to our bodies, both to our lives and to our lives as a church. I mean, stop and think about that in light of what you've just heard. The place where the covenant relationship with God is facilitated and sees its deepest and fullest expression now resides in us. It's portable. We carry it with us. That's why Jesus can say that the kingdom of God is in us and it is among us. It isn't just a spot on top of a hill in Jerusalem. It's us, wherever we go and whatever we do. God's presence is in us. God's power is in us. God's goal of restoring and blessing the world is found in us. And so the question we have to ask ourselves, I think, is this. Am I building God's temple or am I letting it sit in ruin? Am I taking the resources that God has given me to produce a place where God can dwell and empower and restore? Or am I using those resources selfishly? I fear that the same thing happened to the Jews in Haggai's day that has happened to us, spiritually speaking. 
excitement uh, for the Lord, it may fade over time. Um, the foundations of our faith are slowly overtaken or forgotten. Because in the end, it comes down to priorities. We put so much time and effort and money into all sorts of things. But what about our inner life? If we prioritize other things over the temple, God, I think, gets short shrifted. You can always tell what people care about most by um, what they prioritize. It's based on where they spend their time and where they spend their money. I mean, walk through a grocery store and uh, watch commercials on TV, and you will see products proclaiming, ready in just 10 minutes. Great, right? There's so many products that promise to speed up the dinner-making process. Or go to the hardware department, or the fitness sections, and you'll see the same trend. Tools, equipment, gimmicks, guarantee results in the least amount of time. I mean, after all, who wouldn't want perfect abs in six minutes? We'd all want that, right? The marketing, the marketing world loves to convince you of how busy you are. And the best way to free ourselves up is to get through tedious things quicker, right? But you'll notice they don't advertise like golf clubs promising that it'll speed up the round. There's no time-saving tips on watching big screen TVs or video games or streaming services. There's no quick use info on lawn chairs and beach umbrellas. Why? Because we like doing those things. We want to extend that time as much as possible. We want to get through what we see as kind of burdensome as quickly as possible so we can get to the fun stuff. And I wonder if, like the Jews, we've prioritized other things that are more important, and so now there isn't time to work on God's temple in our lives. Let me ask a few questions, maybe a few challenges, that might evaluate where we stand. Do we spend hours on our own projects and hobbies, but barely make it through a few minutes of personal devotional time? Do we find excuses to skip church-related things, Bible studies, church, while planning to do other more interesting things at the very same day and time? Do we routinely watch TV and surf the web every day, but give little time to serving the Lord at church or in other areas? Has serving God and having a daily interaction with God become as tedious as a run on the treadmill? Is our life so busy that we find ourselves looking for ways to cut corners in our relationship with God, especially by squeezing him into our tight schedule like a microwave dinner? If these thoughts are challenging, you're not alone. Many Christians struggle in this area. I know I do. But when we examine our lives, the bottom line is this. If the time we spend with God is low on our priority list, the only logical conclusion is that he's not really important to us. Because we make time for the things that are important. We spend money and resources on the things that matter most to us. So if perhaps you feel like you've been neglecting God's temple, not prioritizing your life with him, let me just make two suggestions. The first 
It sounds like a very churchy answer, but pray about it. I mean, what's the point of the temple? It's to facilitate a relationship between God and the people, right? They would go to the temple to interact with God. Well, guess what? Our temple's right here, wherever we go. We can communicate with God whenever and wherever. We can work on our relationship all the time. And who better to discuss our relationship with God than God himself? We can ask God to revive our interests. He'd love to help out. God is not a killjoy who demands that we skip all the fun to grind through the painful ritual each day. He simply desires our devoted company. I think beginning with that psalm was perfect. It describes, like, it's an amazing thing to interact with God. It's not drudgery. And that's why Paul tells us to pray without ceasing. It's like spending time in God's house perpetually. Our prayer life is a great indication of where our hearts and relationships with God are. I mean, would we consider someone an important friend if we rarely communicated with him or her? So how often do we talk with God? Is prayer even a priority in our lives right now? And what do we pray about? Maybe the first thing we need to pray about is being motivated to pray more. And as we do, as we're redirecting our attention to godly things, to spiritual things, to things of real consequence, instead of our own paneled homes. The second thing I would suggest after praying is, I want to challenge you to spend time with God in an area that's really of interest to you. Years after Haggai's time, when the temple was finally rebuilt, one of Nehemiah's strategies to motivate the people of Jerusalem to rebuild the city walls was to have them work in locations that were closest to their own homes. Nehemiah was essentially commissioning them to build in the areas that were the most interest to them. It was somewhat self-serving, but it was also wise because they were more invested in the work. I think the same could be said uh, for us and how we go about building our own personal temple. Many people today, they might associate making time for God with a boring activity that's totally disconnected from their routine or their actual interests. We're taught to sit down, open up the Bible, read for 15 minutes, go through some sort of prayer routine, and call it a day. But let's be honest. That model doesn't excite everyone. And there's no surprise, because we're all wired differently. My wife and I, we try to tell our kids they need some God time every day. Some God time. And that can look like a lot of different things. Like praying. Maybe listening to worship music. Maybe reading their Bibles. Maybe reading a devotional book. Maybe taking a walk. It's, they're not bound by a particular form. And I don't think you should be either. Just because your Bible reading guide says that you should read 10 chapters of the Bible every day to get through it in a year, doesn't mean that's the perfect plan for you. Maybe you prefer listening to Morgan Freeman's dulcet voice read the Bible to you while you take a walk. That's fine. Maybe taking a stroll through nature while humming worship songs. Maybe that's what appeals to you. Maybe a more intense deep Bible study is your thing. Maybe reading and praying other people's prayers connects you with God. Whatever it is, I think if it is God-based, it is growing his temple in you. So think creatively and use today's technology to your advantage in a godly way. It doesn't take much discipline to do the things we enjoy. So let's spend time with God 
and serve God while doing the things that really interest us and get us excited. If you think about life, every day you exchange that day for something. It's almost like at the start of our lives, we were issued a certain number of coins, right? And every day, the machine issues us a new coin. And you can take that coin, and you can do whatever you want with it. You're exchanging it for something. Maybe it's a day at work or a day at school. Maybe it's shopping. Maybe it's church. Maybe it's leisure. Whatever it is. And once spent, you can't get that coin back to spend differently. And so the art of living wisely, it's really a matter of spending your coin on the things that really matter in light of eternity and not frivolously wasting them. Living wisely is often difficult, not because the choice is between the bad and the good, but it's the choice between the good and the best. The challenge that Haggai brought to the people I think is the same one that should challenge us this morning. Verse 5 and 7 both say this. Give careful thought to your ways. In other words, evaluate what you're doing. Compare what you're doing and what you're not doing. Consider what you have gained by seeking to satisfy your desires over God's desires. Are you building a paneled house? A paneled life? While God's temple lies desolate in your life? Consider your ways. If you read the rest of the story, the people of Judah, they responded to Haggai's challenge. Verse 12 says that those who were there obeyed and feared the Lord. They showed reverence for who God was and what God expected of them. They quickly refocused their energies and their resources and began to work on the temple again. What they heard stirred up their spirits And they applied themselves wholeheartedly to the task that the Lord had given them. My prayer for us is that we give careful thought to our ways. That we respond to God using our time, our energy, our resources. That we respond by building God's kingdom on this earth and in our own lives. This morning, if God is challenging you in some way, challenging you to respond Maybe for the first time, or maybe say, you know what, I have let my priorities slip. I have been building my own paneled home while God's temple sits in ruins. Perhaps the time to rededicate your life or respond. Maybe you need prayer about things. As I said, prayer is, is so big that we just let it slip, this relationship with God. This morning, uh, we're going to give you the opportunity. If you'd like to come and respond in some way, we invite you to come forward uh, as we stand and as we sing.